there's an obvious lessened focus by you know governments, businesses, the public on climate change. And, you know, in the midst of a of a pandemic, it's hard to say, oh, updating your nationally determined contribution this year has to be the top priority. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements and the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. In December of 2019, when I was in Madrid with my team at the 25th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, better known as the annual Climate Change Negotiations, I had wanted very much to sit down for a podcast conversation with Sue Biniaz, a longtime U.S. negotiator and participant in the annual climate change meetings. But unfortunately, due to some unrelated security breaches that took that place that day at COP25, we were unable to get together. Uh, that's the bad news. But the good news is that we are making it happen today although Sue and I are in different locations because of COVID-19 social distancing. Sue is currently a lecturer at Yale Law School, and before that, she served for over 30 years in the State Department's Legal Advisor's Office. And from 1989 until 2017, she was the lead climate lawyer and a lead climate negotiator for the United States. Welcome, Sue. Thanks for having me, Rob. Great to have you with us. Uh, I'm interested, of course, to hear your impressions of where the climate negotiations now stand and where they're going. But before we talk of that, uh, I think our listeners will be interested to have some understanding of how you came to be where you are and where you've been. So let's go back to that. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up on Long Island, so basically the suburbs of New York City. And that meant primary school and high school? Uh, yes, the, the, whole, the whole bit. Yeah, I went to a big public high school on, um, in, in Wontaw, which is better known for being the uh, gateway to Jones Beach than probably for, for any other reason. Right. And then you went to college where? I, I went to Yale undergrad. Mm-hmm. And what would what'd you study as an undergraduate? You know, I started out pre-med because like, most kids from my high school who went on to college were more interested in math and science because that's what my high school was better at. Uh, mm-hmm. When I got to Yale, I realized that there was this whole world of humanities out there. And uh, so I kind of gravitated in that direction. And I ended up majoring in Russian studies. In Russian studies. Interesting. Now, so then how did you uh, wind up going to law school and where did you go to law school? I was one of those people who went to law school uh, as, a, as a default, I guess, because I, once I gave up the idea of med school, I really couldn't think of something better to do. And I got interested in, as I was uh, studying Russian studies, so this was in like the height of the, of the Soviet Union, I got mm-hmm. interested in Soviet law and kind of wrote my college thesis on Soviet law and then um, decided, oh, well, that's something I could, I could specialize in. So I ended up going to Columbia Law School thinking I would specialize in Soviet law, but thank God I didn't, because uh, you know the Soviet Union fell apart a couple years later. And um, so, I, so while in law school, I got more interested in just sort of international law 
generally. And, you know, that's a hint to why I ended up at the State Department. Now, for those of us who don't know anything really about Soviet Union law, I would have reacted and thought that Soviet law is close to being an oxymoron, but apparently not if it's an area that was of scholarship at the time. Uh, yeah, I know my brother used to say the same thing. Like, isn't that the null set, uh, Soviet law? But I thought it was really interesting and, uh, you know, both historically and, you know, how did Soviet law deal with uh, issues like intellectual property, which which should be kind of anathema to a communist system, but they needed to make certain accommodations to, you know, create incentives for That's innovation. Yeah. Now, what was your first job out of law school? Well, um, like many law school graduates, I clerked for a judge I, on, mm-hmm. the, on the Ninth Circuit in, in Los Angeles uh, for a year. Um, a lot of people do that before taking their first kind of real job. That's certainly the case. I always hear that. But can, can you explain to us wh- why it is? Why is it that people that it seems the top students coming out of a law school wind up uh, clerking for a year? It's a great experience because you're, you're sort of on the inside of how, um, you know, the judicial system works. And you, you know, when the, when the, this is an appellate court, so you're not in a, you're not uh, watching a trial or anything, but you're seeing briefs from um, both sides of an issue. And you read those briefs and kind of write a background memo for the three judges that are going to be on the panel explaining, you know, each side's arguments and then kind of making your own recommendations for the questions they should ask at the hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and then you watch the hearing and then the judges have their own conference where they decide which way they want to go. And then you draft up, um, you know, like a recommended opinion. So um, it's pretty amazing at age 25 that you get to draft kind of at least do the first draft of what becomes the law. So I think that's what's very appealing to a lot of people. You learn a lot. You're around a lot of uh, smart judges. And um, and then the rest of your career, even if you don't litigate ever or show up in a courtroom, which is basically my situation, you know, it still gives you a kind of um, inside peek. That makes a lot of sense. Now, how is it that you went from the appellate court to the State Department? Well, during law school, you know, you, you basically spend summers trying out different possibilities that you might want to pursue after law school, and, and that's what I did. So one summer I worked at the State Department, and I absolutely loved it. You know, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, every issue that rolled in, no matter how how little, <laughs> I really, really just loved. Um, so at the end of my clerkship, I had to decide, you know, go back to New York law firm or go to State Department. And I decided I should go to the State Department, get it out of my system, um, you know, be there a couple of years and then end up in New York. And I just never ended up in New York. So two years turned into 32 years. and That's a decision you've never regretted, I would guess. Uh, no, not really. I mean, I don't think there are that many lawyers who love their jobs as much as I yeah. loved mine. I really right. just bounded out of bed in the morning because I, mm-hmm. I just loved loved my issues. As you well know, the, the venue where we were together uh, at last year's climate talks in Madrid, as well as what was the planned venue for this year's climate talks in Glasgow, have both been turned into field hospitals because of COVID-19. And of course, the climate talks uh, that were scheduled to take place in November 2020 in Glasgow, Scotland, have been postponed due to the global pandemic. 
you know, what's your reaction to the postponement? Or tell me this, actually, what was your reaction the moment you heard about the postponement? Well, I mean, the issue of whether to postpone had been kind of in the works for a while. So I, there wasn't a moment. I wasn't like like shocked or anything. I knew mm-hmm. that there was gonna a decision was gonna be taken in the near future, and I actually I didn't see how you could decide to uh, to stick with the um, with the, the current dates. So I was not you know I was not unpleasantly surprised. I, I guess we're all kind of disappointed, but that but you know I th- it had to be the right decision to postpone um, to postpone the cop and the subsidiary body. Meetings. Also, I um, was one of those people. Maybe this is uh, politically incorrect to say, but I never thought it was a great idea to have the the cop like a week after the U.S. election. Yeah, well, so I'm sure you remember as well as I do uh, the time in uh, what was it, 2016, when the the proximity of the cop to the U.S. election and people in the hallways, at least when I arrived in the second week of the cop were just glassy-eyed, walking like zombies at the result of the change of administration in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the cop that was in The Hague um, many moons ago uh, was right in the middle of the Bush v. Gore mm-hmm. undecided election. It's either, you know, in a, in a Trump 2.0 scenario, I think it would cast a negative shadow on the whole cop. Uh, if Biden were to win, people would be happy from a climate point of view, but the but the new administration wouldn't be able to really do or say anything because they wouldn't be in yeah. power. And if you had some kind of contested election, it would be a big distraction like it was um, back in The Hague. So in in that, there's that small silver lining that at least mm-hmm. you know, that won't uh, be an issue. So that makes me wonder, have there ever been informal discussions about changing the annual dates of the COP instead of doing it in November, December to some other time of the year? Um, Not that I know of, although it's coming up now, I suppose, because uh, apparently the UK, you know, it it has, it's been decided, you know, to hold it next year, Mm -hmm. but it's not exactly clear when. And I think they're deciding between kind of May, June timeframe versus November, December timeframe. So Mm -hmm. if they were to decide on May, June, then you'd have to, you know, there'd be a sort of knock on or follow on decisions to make. Like, do you hold the next cop in a couple months later or do you postpone that one to the next year? And So there's the choice of having it a few months later or a year later or a year and a half later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that'll be interesting. So more broadly, um, do you anticipate that the pandemic and, you know, the the closing of economies and transportation as a result of the pandemic um, is going to, as at least some observers have said, completely derail the UN approach and even render the Paris Agreement obsolete and ineffective? Or what's your view on all that? You know, I like to categorize things. So I guess I would divide the implications into three pieces and mm-hmm. there are probably more and uh, you as an economist would probably <laughs> add a couple that I haven't even thought of. But, you know, one is sort of like logistical implications and the delay of the cop is one example of, of that. But the other example of, of logistical implications could be, you know, do we have to hold cops in different ways? Mm-hmm. I had already been thinking we need to kind of revamp the annual cop because there's like less and less negotiation taking place. So that, that can no longer be like the single metric by which you judge cops. But I think 
you know, even by the end of next year, is it going to be possible or desirable to have thousands of people interacting? You know, I don't know. So um, I guess logistical is one. Um, another is just focus, right? It's mm-hmm. there's an obvious lessened focus by you know governments, businesses, the public mm-hmm. on climate change. And you know, in the midst of a of a pandemic, it's hard to say, oh, updating your nationally determined contribution this year has to be the top priority. Um, I think the Secretary General of the UN is is trying to keep it on the front burner. You know, he said the other day, I guess on Earth Day, that climate change is actually the deeper emergency compared mm-hmm. to COVID. But, you know, I don't know if that's going to, message is going to break through. And then the third is just like the substantive implications of of COVID um, and the economic recession uh, and all of that on what parties are able to to do. And I think for that, and I think you had Joe Aldeon recently talking about stimulus packages, but everybody mm-hmm. seems to be pointing to those as having a major impact on uh, on emissions one way or another, right? Like if you if your stimulus packages lock in carbon intensive um, activities, then you know you may we you may we can, may come out of this crisis you know sort of in a worse position from um, compared to before. On the other hand, if you kind of green your stimulus package, you may come out in a better place. So I guess that I, that's those are the three ways that I mm-hmm. look at it. But I don't think it means like the Paris Agreement is devastated. Mm-hmm. So I mean, thinking back to the two thousand eight two thousand nine recession, which remarkably we can now say was actually mild compared to what we're likely to experience with COVID-19, that the Obama administration actually did include some significant green elements to its recovery package. And, And it appears that the European Union is going to do likewise, but that has not been the case, at least so far, in the United States, unless I've missed something. Yeah, I think so far that's that's been true. I mean, there're going to be several, I guess, tranches of mm-hmm. uh recovery and stimulus and all of that. So, um there's still hope that um you know, there'll be greener aspects of uh of future packages. It's kind of tricky because you want you don't you don't want to lock in bad outcomes. On the other mm-hmm. hand, if uh the I think the green groups some um they have to walk a careful line because they also don't want to be accused of sort of taking advantage of the of the situation. So I think it's um, it's tricky business. So you were talking about the Paris Agreement. Now, you know, my understanding is that from the last couple of COPs, the one element that was still remaining to be concluded in the so-called rule book, the more details that get written, was Article 6. Um so where do you think that stands in terms of completing the work on Article 6? Or is that just now off the table? I don't think it's off the table. I think it will be among the you know many things that the UK tries to do at its COP, even though it's um, you know a year later. You know, it was unfortunate that they didn't reach agreement on Article 6 in Madrid. I think the compromises were all pretty evident. Um, and, you know, they ran out of time. Mm-hmm. I think there wasn't uh, enough kind of political oomph put into it at the end. You know, it's an example of where the, if the U.S. had been there at a, at a political level, they would have been able to sort of 
bang some heads together and, and get it done. I mean, one way in which it might be easier to reach agreement on Article 6 is that um, I think more analysis is being carried out uh, between now and next year on, you know, like one of the remaining issues in terms of this, the new clean development mechanism mm -hmm. was, uh, will you be able to use leftover Kyoto offsets from the old clean development mechanism, you know, under the Paris Agreement after 2020? To a certain extent, it was ideological with some saying like, yes, absolutely, and others saying, no, absolutely not. Um, and I think what people are now doing is actually analyzing how many of those units are there <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, at what point is there, you know, is there a problem with environmental integrity if you let them kind of flood the system? And so maybe with more facts, um, you know, people will be able to, to come to agreement sort of on a rational basis rather than just yes and no. You know, my reaction to what I observed, at least, with Article 6 in in Madrid is that whereas one might think, one might hypothesize, well, with only one of the, was it, 29 articles of the Paris Agreement remaining, everyone can focus on that, and so the likelihood of completing it is greater. But rather, what I observed is what I've called the funnel effect, Namely, that people, lots of parties to the agreement, lots of countries were really not satisfied with one article or another of the agreement, whether it's transparency or ambition or whatever. And all of those other issues sort of got funneled into Article 6. So a lot of what the text that people wanted in Article 6 were things that really belonged in other parts of the of the agreement, and then that became a problem in and of itself. I think you're right, and I, I, I agree it's kind of counterintuitive. You'd think if you have one article left, yeah. it'd be easy to reach agreement, but I think um, what happened was there was too much attention, in a way, focused yeah. on Article Article 6, so that even countries that had not had strong positions on it, you know, because it was the only game in town, um, you know, gravitated towards it and took positions, making it more difficult. So, you know, the UK is going to have to make sure that it, you know, it's people are not viewing this, the next cop as like an Article 6 cop. I think that's yes. one of the problems I've been, it's one of the reasons I think the cop needs to be rethought, because I think the, the metric that's been mm -hmm. used by many people, including the press, has been, you know, what the negotiating issues that are on the table. And if you if you only look at those, it's, it's just puts too much pressure on um, what should be kind of a minor aspect of a cop compared to like everything else that's going on. Now, the, the United States is scheduled to withdraw from the Paris Agreement on November 4th of this year. If it turns out in the presidential election, there is a change of administration. There, that is that there is not a Trump uh, 2.0, as you said. Um, how can the new administration rejoin the agreement? Yeah, it's it's pretty um, straightforward to rejoin the agreement. Uh, they could even do it on day one, which is, I think, what um, the Democratic candidates kind of all said they would do. Um, you know, under the Paris Agreement, it basically clearly provides for a state to join, become a party, even after the agreement has entered into force, and you become a party 30 days later. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the international law piece. And then the domestic law piece is it's not the kind of agreement that requires... Senate approval or congressional 
approval. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, a new administration could just jump in right away. Um, if they did join right away and become a party 30 days later, the, the gap would be pretty small, right? Because mm -hmm. would have exited on November 4th and, you know, become a party again, you know, in February. So uh, on inauguration day, then, you're saying the U.S. might be anticipated to rejoin the Paris Agreement if there is a change of party in the White House. Yeah, I don't know if it would be on inauguration day or the next day or a couple right. of days later. But I think, you know, that part is... Um, is pretty straightforward. Now, the other part, of course, is the U.S. nationally determined contribution, the NDC. Um, what are the possible objectives that the new administration would have? How would it go about and on what basis formulating its NDC? Or would it simply pick up what is there from the Obama administration? I have kind of written about this issue because I think it, you need to separate the rejoining from mm -hmm. the NDC, right? Mm -hmm. Rejoining easy, NDC not so easy. Because um, I think you've got like timing issues and substantive issues, right? Because, so I think the objectives of a new administration might be or maybe should be. Um, you know, I have five. One would be like immediacy. So they'd be, they'd be anxious to kind of rejoin Paris as soon as possible, right? Mm -hmm. To show we're not the Trump administration. I, ambition, because mm -hmm. they want to show that they you know, care about this uh, issue a lot, think um, ambitious action is necessary. The third would be credibility, right, because you're, you're kind of in a credibility hole at the moment. You walked away from the Kyoto Protocol, you walked away from the Paris Agreement. Um, you want to show that you can sort of deliver on what you're committing to. Um, the fourth would be durability. Like, I think from a I don't know if others would share this view, but I guess I feel like from a foreign policy point of view, you, you want to if you're going to rejoin the Paris Agreement, do it in a way that isn't going to just be reversed four or eight years later. Like, try to make sure you have enough domestic buy-in so it's, you know, harder for a future administration to just reverse it again. Um, and then the fifth would be leverage. Like, if you're going to come back into the agreement, try to use whatever leverage the United States has at that point to get other countries to do, to do more. So, you know, those are what I would think are the five objectives, and some of them are like potentially at odds with each other. And if our listeners want to read more about what you've written, is that in your article, After Madrid, Wither the Cop? Um, on this issue, I think it's called Returning to Paris, the Next U.S. NDC. We're running out of time, but I'm interested to ask you, um, what's your reaction to what up until COVID-19 was a, a striking reality, now we've almost forgotten about it, which were these youth movements around the world of climate activism that uh, have arisen or arose both in Europe and in the United States. And obviously that, that also led to some disruption uh, at the most recent COP, but more broadly than that disruption, what's your reaction to those youth movements of climate activism? Well, I, I guess mostly positive. Um, I don't agree with every uh, kind of policy that they're espousing. Like, I, I, you know, I don't agree with, you know, never fly or, or things like that. I don't think they're um, realistic or even kind of the right, the right policy. But in terms of just getting young people interested in this issue and, um, you know, creating more debate, the fact that the UN... 
you know, it would have been kind of unthinkable, I think, you know, 10 years ago that the a UN summit would be like very oriented <laughs> around youth and having, you know, young people come and like speak to um, a gathering of heads of state. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, more positive than not positive, definitely. Mm -hmm. If it mm -hmm. translates into votes, getting out and voting for kind of pro-climate candidates, you know, even better. Well, let, we're going to end on that very positive note. So thank you very much, Sue, for taking time to join us today. Uh, before we go, I want to note that Sue has written a brief and another very informative article that's relevant to today's discussion. And that's the one titled, After Madrid, Wither the Cop? from Columbia Law School, January 2020, and that's certainly available uh, on the internet. And then, uh, while I'm at it, I really should note that uh, another uh, article that's considerably more pessimistic, so you get a balanced view, is provided by another legal scholar, Noah Sachs, in his article, The Paris Agreement in the 2020s, Breakdown or Breakup, which was published just last year in Ecology Law Quarterly, which is a law review coming out of the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I want to thank again our guest today, Sue Biniaz, who served from 1989 until 2017 as the lead climate lawyer and a lead negotiator in the annual UNFCCC climate negotiations. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversation on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.